0: This morning's reading is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 810, 810. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And keep your Bibles open to Matthew 5 as we look together at this wonderful passage this morning, and let's pray as we seek the Lord to hear from Him. Gracious Father, when we open Your Word, there's no greater need than for Your Spirit to give us ears to hear. Lord, may our eyes not simply see words on a page today, may our minds not simply think about human words, may our hearts be engaged with you, and so be with us, to meet us, to shape us, to change us for your good pleasure, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most exciting occurrences in the Levering household in recent days is that our daughter Eva has been learning how to read. This is so exciting for her that whenever she brings home a new little easy reader thing, you know, the mat sat on a log, those kinds of things, she can't help but read it to virtually everybody in the house. So she gets home and she reads it to Carissa, and then at night she reads it to me. And when her nana was visiting recently, she read it to her. And and if she can't read it to you, she will glowingly announce the fact that she can read it, and she'll tell you know her grandparents back in Nebraska about this, and uh, her siblings, her friends, even the doctor at her recent annual appointment, and anyone who will listen she cannot help but share with others the news that she is learning how to read. Because good news is always worth sharing with other people, right? What do you do when you find a new restaurant that you really like? You tell your friends, you've got to try this place, it's amazing. Or when the Celtics pull off another victory last night, making it 15 in a row. You know... You you What do you do? You hop on to, to Facebook or Twitter or whatever and you celebrate that even though everyone else was watching the same game. They already know the outcome. You still have to share that news, right? And so if trivial matters like food or basketball or even learning how to read, if those are so good that you can't help but share them with others... What about the best news of all? That life is not meaningless. That there is a God who made us, who rules us, who has the right to judge us, and who loves us and sent his only son that he might redeem us and reconcile us to himself, that we might have relationship with him to know and enjoy and love him forever. The best news of all. The good news of Jesus is the best news. It's the best news there is. And it was never meant to be a private matter for a pious few. It was always meant to go public. Jesus did not perform his miracles in a corner Or die secretly behind closed doors or a curtain. He lived in the open, teaching publicly from town to town. He died in the open, raised on a cross for the whole world to see. He rose in the open, appearing to his disciples, even up to 500 of them at one time. And before he ascended to his father, he sent his disciples out into the open to bear witness to all nations that He is the true King and Savior of all humanity. Our passage this morning in Matthew 5 uh, gets at this same idea that, that the good news of Christ is meant to go public. And it gives us a compelling portrait, not only of what we're called to do, but who we actually are as followers of Christ, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Going public with the gospel of Jesus, making Christ known in all his beauty and his glory is not just something we do, it's essential to who we are as the church. Because it's through his church that Christ has chosen to reveal his glory to the world. To announce his gospel that people, that all kinds of people from all kinds of places would come to treasure Christ above all things. For his glory and for their eternal satisfaction. So Christ reveals his glory through the witness of his church. That's what we see. Which is why local outreach is one of our core commitments as a church. This fall we're looking at our different core commitments of our vision. Our desire to see Christ treasured above all things and what does it take to, to move forward toward that. Local outreach is one of those core commitments. The, uh, the desire to make Christ known among our neighbors, among our friends, our family. Christ will not be treasured and people will be left in the dark apart from the local church, from you and me, going public with the gospel in both word and deed. Christ being treasured requires his church, making Christ known. So what does it mean then to be the light of the world? Uh, If we're honest, that can sound a little bit arrogant and presumptuous to kind of say about ourselves, yeah, we're the light of the world. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by that? And what's at stake in shining that light clearly and accurately? What are the obstacles that threaten to dampen it or distort it? And what does it even look like in daily practice? That's what I want to consider this morning as we think about this call to local outreach for the sake of seeing Christ treasured, uh, looking right here at Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You might have noticed um, that our verses, the verses before us are found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. It's a bigger collection of Jesus' teachings, one of the most important collections of those, uh, where he shows us what life looks like under his authority as king. What does life look like as part of God's kingdom, his rule and reign? And the verses we're looking at come right after the famous Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, the, the meek those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on, where Jesus kind of unpacks the character of God's kingdom. But then in verse 13, he turns from the character of the church to her purpose, to her identity, an identity that he summarizes with the metaphors of salt and light. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So shining our light for Christ is not just something that we do, it's who we are. It's who we are. You are the light of the world. But what does that metaphor mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, you are the light of the world? Well, first, it suggests that something about this world is filled with darkness. If you're the light of the world, that tells us something about the world, that it's filled with darkness. And and if we think about that, even just for a minute, that's not hard to see. That's not a controversial thing to say. Who among us would say that this world works the way that it's supposed to? Are mass shootings supposed to happen as frequently as they do in our country? Is sexual assault supposed to be the running headline every single day in the news lately? Are people supposed to lie and cheat and steal from each other, take advantage from each other? This world is filled with darkness. That is not a controversial statement. But there's a deeper level of darkness at work in this world, the root of darkness, that not simply preys on one another, but is characterized By a rebellion against God. Jesus describes it in John chapter 3. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed so the fact that the fact is that we know what we do is wrong but we do it anyway because we like it if we didn't like it we wouldn't do it but what the world doesn't always realize is that this darkness that that wells up out of our darkened hearts actually separates us from the God who is light. It cuts us off from light and love and relationship with Him and condemns us to eternal destruction away from His presence and glory. So, this dark world is in desperate need of light. That's one thing we learn from this metaphor. But isn't it a bit presumptuous for the church to claim to be that light? You know, Are we saying that we've figured something out, that we've got all the answers? Is that what this claim is making? No, what Jesus is saying is that he is the answer, and he's making that answer known through his church. That's what he's saying. Because God is light. That's one of the consistent uh, points Scripture makes about who He is. 1 John 1, 5. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And He sent His eternal Son, Jesus, into this dark world, dark world John 1 tells us, as, quote, the true light that gives light to every man. So God is light. Jesus is Light. And he came as light to chase away that darkness, to deal with it, to deal with it at its root, the root of sin. And so to do this, he lived a perfect life of faithfulness before his father, where his life was categorized only by light, no darkness at all. He did this to show us what life is supposed to look like. Because our experience is always tainted with darkness. He did this to take our sin and rebellion onto Himself on the cross. That we might be forgiven of sin and through His resurrection then to give new life and light to all who would believe. Jesus came, John, He says Himself in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's why he came, to deal with the darkness through his own life, death, and resurrection. And this same king who says to us, I am the light of the world, tells his followers in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Not because we've accomplished something or figured something out, but because we've been changed by Jesus. And he's choosing to shine his light through his people. The light of the church is like the light of the moon. If you think about that. The, you look at the moon and it gives light during the nighttime, but not because the moon itself produces any light. It's simply reflecting the light of the sun. And so we don't give credit to the moon for the power to produce light. That would be silly. The moon's just an instrument. The credit goes to the sun. That's the source of light. And so it is for us, when we behold the Son of God, the Apostle Paul tells us we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We reflect the glory of Christ, not because we're glorious, but because we're reflecting His glory as a people changed by Him. So we let our light shine before others, as Jesus says, so that they may see our good works and give glory not to us, but to our Father who is in heaven, the source of the light. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Christ reveals his glory through the witness of his church. Through you and me. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So that's our identity. That's central to who Christ has made us. But what's at stake in shining that light accurately? The reality is that the church is always sending a message. We're always sending a message. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. There's never a point at which you can hide the fact that it's there. Church is always sending a message. So how can we be sure that the light that we're shining, the light that others are seeing, is the light of Jesus and not something else? Not our own light. Not some other light. How can we be sure that it's not disturbed? distorted or dampened how can we remain faithful to our call and effective in our mission here in new england and to the ends of the earth well jesus speaks to two temptations very directly in our passage two temptations that we can expect to face as we bear witness to christ we can summarize the first as separation Separation, dampening or concealing our light for fear of persecution from the world. Just separating ourselves so that they can't even see it. That's the first. The second, we can call syncretism. Distorting our light in effort to be accepted by the world. So we can dampen it to avoid being persecuted or we can distort it In order to be accepted, those are the two temptations we face, and Jesus speaks to both of them here. The first one being separation to to disengage from the world for fear of persecution. It is risky to talk about Jesus. What if people don't want to hear it? What if we can't answer their questions? What if they think I'm stupid? What if they reject me or this somehow breaks our relationship together? What if they just think I'm some sort of backwoods bigot or something like that? It's an honest concern. Nobody wants to be that guy that everyone feels like they have to kind of perform around or put on a show for because they're too good for you. Nobody wants to be that guy. And so... And the reality is, it, it, it's getting harder and harder to be a faithful Christian in America today. You know, compare it to the rest, other parts of the world, that sounds like a ridiculous statement. But to take the gospel seriously is to risk being insulted, marginalized, labeled as judgmental, fundamentalist, hypocritical, bigoted, you name it. And and so there's this fear that I don't, I don't know if I want That. There's this temptation to just kind of disengage. But here's the deal. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen to his church. In the verses just before our passage, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a temptation to dampen or conceal our light for fear of becoming a target, to go incognito with our Christianity, to fly under radar, just kind of, we're going to do our own thing over here out in the woods of Weston, and and y'all can just go on with your life. But that would be to forfeit the mission that God has given us. That would be to forget our identity. We are the light of the world. And and it defeats the whole purpose of being a light. The the metaphor doesn't work when you hide it. Jesus says in verse 15, people don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. No, you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole room. You don't turn your flashlight on when you're camping and then just put it in your backpack and zip it up. No reason to have the flashlight if that's what you're going to do. That's not what it's for. It's designed to give light. The church is designed to give light. And furthermore, to conceal that light for fear would actually be a failure to love. It would be a failure to love. Love is always risky. It's always risky. And if we love our non-believing friends and family, we have to tell them about Jesus. The best news ever. To not do so would actually be unloving. Uh, Penn Gillette, who is part of the famous magician duo Penn and Teller, uh, he's an outspoken atheist. But he once said this about Christians who don't tell others about Christ. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? It's a failure to love concealing our lights a failure to love. So we've been entrusted with the gospel, with the best news in the world. Christ has chosen to reveal his glory through us. How else will the neighborhood know? How else will your friends or your families or your classmates or your coworkers know if they never see and experience the beauty of Jesus? through what you say and how you live. So That's the first temptation, to separate. The second temptation that we face in our mission is what I call syncretism. So rather than disengaging from the world, we try to reach the world by becoming just like the world. And that's what Jesus warns against in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And a lot of people have wrestled with this metaphor, trying to figure out what exactly is Jesus getting at here with this? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Uh, And, you know, there were several different ways that salt was used in the ancient world. One commentator lists 11 different uses for salt. Uh, But I think he tells us what he's getting at here. His concern is over the salt losing its taste, its flavor, its seasoning. Uh, A few years ago, I was making ramen noodles for lunch one day in the little office kitchenette type thing. Don't judge me for eating ramen. Uh, And I... Forgot to add that little seasoning packet to the water. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this before. As soon as it hit my lips, it came right back out. It was disgusting. That little silver packet is the difference between lunch and garbage. Because it's loaded with salt. That's what gives the soup flavor you forget that it's useless the other way you can ruin ramen (laughs) speak with some experience here is by adding too much water to it so that the salt gets diluted and i think that's the picture that jesus is getting at here that the church as the light of the world has a unique flavor a unique message But we lose our flavor, our actual unique contribution to the world when we become deluded by the world. Which ironically actually makes us useless to the world. And you can, and that can take all sorts of shapes. I mean, sometimes we become deluded by adopting the methods of the world. For instance, one of the biggest temptations for evangelicals recently is to trust in political power more than Jesus. To adopt the world's method of getting stuff done. Even to the point, we can become so uh, focused on gaining that power that uh, sometimes we're even willing to compromise certain ethics in order to try and promote or protect other ethics we feel are under threat. But what message does that send to the world? The church is always sending a message. And the message that the world has heard from evangelicalism this past year is that there's almost nothing we're unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of political power. That's the message. That's what they see. That's what they hear when we trust political power More than Jesus. When we try and grab onto the methods of this world as though we're going to reach the world that way, it dilutes our witness. That's not the light of Christ that we need to be shining. Other times, we're we're tempted to dilute or distort our witness by conforming our message to the world. So we can adopt the methods, we can also conform our message. One of the frequent charges against Christianity today is that it is irrelevant. It's outdated. It's It doesn't connect with where people are really living. They don't see their need for it. And, And so that results in all sorts of pressure on the church to become more relevant, to become more attractive to the lost, to give them what they want and then just try and sneak Jesus in there somewhere. Even to change the message to become less offensive or more acceptable or palatable to modern sensitivities. It's really easy to give in. But here's the problem. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. So if we win the world by becoming like the world, whether by feeding consumeristic impulses or or watering down morality or anything like that, we've not won them to Jesus. We've won them to some sort of baptized version of what they already had. It's as useless as soup without the salt. We've lost our flavor. Our witness becomes garbage. Garbage. If we give up the one unique thing that we have to offer to the world, the gospel of Jesus, in our attempt to win the world, we actually become irrelevant to the world. That's what happens. We lose our saltiness. You win them to what you win them with. So we must win them to Jesus with Jesus. He's our message. He's what we have to offer. Our light is not the light of financial stability or well-adjusted children or successful careers or social activism, though the gospel will speak to all of those things. Our light is Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else than Jesus Christ and the difference He makes in our lives. That's the light we shine. And so what does that look like in practice? How do we live that out? What are we actually talking about when we talk about local outreach? And what does that look like for Westgate as a church? In our pursuit to see Christ treasured above all things. Well, in terms of Westgate uh, and our vision, this is... Another area where we have a lot of growing to do. Local outreach is not our strongest point as a church. And we know that. And and we've been concerned about that. And so one of the first things we're doing as we try and implement our vision is to try and and give that the attention it needs, to go before God and to listen to Him. And, And the way we're beginning that process is pulling together a team of people uh, we're calling it our local outreach development team. We need people to give focused time and energy on seeking the Lord and helping, you know, think through uh, what we're currently doing and how that lines up with the vision, what we're not doing and could be, how we need to change as a church for that to happen. And so we're looking for godly, gifted people with biblical convictions to be part of that team, people passionate about Evangelism and outreach, and if that's something your heart gets excited about, I would like to hear from you. We're putting that together right now. So, so we want to give this the attention it deserves, and I believe that that team is a critical step uh, in that direction. But you knew there'd be a but. That doesn't mean that if we're not on that team. The rest of us just sit back and don't have to worry about it until they figure it out. That's not what it means. As Max Stiles reminds us in his brilliant little book on evangelism, he says, "...a culture of evangelism is not ultimately dependent on events, projects, programs, and ministry professionals. Instead, it's built on people filled with the power of God's Spirit," proclaiming the gospel of God's grace in the context of their everyday lives and relationships. In other words, our ultimate strategy for local outreach is you. Each one of you. And me. Us. You are the light of the world. So how do we shine that light? There are two ways that we show others what Christ is like. Through our works and our words, how we live and what we say. And Jesus focuses first on the works in our passage. Look at verse 16 again, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the light of Christ shines through his people when our lives reflect his life. That's the picture. When our lives, it's the moon and the sun. Our lives, our character reflects his life and his character. The way we live is a mere picture of the way Jesus lived. We become the metaphor, the illustration. And so that means we're talking about obedience to Christ. We're talking about holiness taking sin seriously and righteousness seriously. We're talking about humility, recognizing that while we are made in the image of God and have inherent value and dignity, at the same time, we are spiritually bankrupt and utterly dependent on Christ. And it means we're talking about love. We're talking about love. Loving the Lord, loving one another as family And loving our neighbors as ourselves by laying our lives down for them. So there's a visible aspect to our witness. There's a visible aspect. How we live in terms of character, integrity matters. When you love your spouse well, or when you love your children well, or when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ well, you're showing others what Christ is like. When you love your neighbors well, laying your life down for them, not assuming they're just going to come to you, but going to them and, and looking for ways to love them, to, lift, to share in their burdens, you know, helping them out with their leaves, watching their kid while they've got a doctor's appointment, any number of ways that we can practically, tangibly love them. When we do that, you're showing your neighbor what Christ is like in his sacrificial love. So how we live is one of the ways we shine the light of Christ through our works. Which is inconvenient and takes time, but is ultimately and utterly worth it to be able to share life together with those who don't know Christ that they might see what he's like. That's huge. So we shine the light of Christ through good works, but good works are not enough. They are necessary for evangelism, but they are insufficient because the gospel is news. It's not advice of how we should live, it's news. It's a report of what God has done. And you can't communicate news without words. So there's a visible aspect to our witness, but there's also a verbal aspect to our witness. You may be the best leaf raker in the neighborhood. You may be the best employee at your company. But nobody's ever going to look at you and say, wow, you know, John is, there's not a leaf in his yard and he is always so punctual. He's out the door at work on time. I'll bet that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he died for my sins and rose again. And if I believe in him, I can have eternal life. Nobody's going to come to that conclusion. The gospel must be proclaimed with words. Words expressed and backed up with actions, yes, but it takes words. There's a verbal aspect. We must explain to others the good news of Christ. So what is that good news? Well, the long version is the Bible. That's the good news. The short version is the message of Christ crucified and risen. But here's a simple way to remember it. Four words. God, man, Christ, response. Simple way to remember it. God. The gospel is the message that God is God and we are not. He's the creator and king. He made this world with a vision to bring glory to his name through a people made in his image. Man, people are made in God's image and full of beauty and dignity and worth. Yet we rebelled against God's plan through our sin. And because of that, we're deserving of God's holy wrath and condemnation. Christ, in his love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live for us the life we were supposed to live but wouldn't and to die for us the death that we deserve, paying for our sin and exhausting God's wrath against us. He then rose from the dead on the third day and now sits at the right hand of God, reigning over the universe and offering forgiveness and new life to all who believe in him. Response, we take hold of Christ through faith turning away from sin and trusting in Christ <clears throat> the gospel is not a message that tells us <clears throat> excuse me to try harder or to make it up to god it's a message that says jesus has already done everything necessary to reconcile us to god we need only take hold of him by faith trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you become a child of God, a follower of Jesus, a member of God's family forever. That's the good news. And we can expand on that in all sorts of ways. And and you're not necessarily going to go over every single point in every conversation you have with somebody about God. But that's a summary of the message we've been given to proclaim. And one of the most effective ways to share that is simply to invite people to read the Bible together with you. It's one of the most simple and effective ways. Pray for them and invite them to see for themselves what the Bible actually says. You could start with the Gospel of Mark and just read it and talk about what it says uh, over coffee, over donuts, whatever. This is one of my favorite ways of doing evangelism. Because it's not my word that we're focused on. It's God's word that we're focused on. And it's his word that does the work as the spirit applies it to our lives. I can't change anybody's heart. And thankfully, it's not my job to change somebody's heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to pray and to proclaim. God is the one who changes the hearts. And, and as we do that, as we shine the light of Christ, as we go public with the gospel, we can expect one of two results. Persecution, when our beacon makes us a target. That's what Jesus talked about just before this. It's obviously not the result we're hoping for, but it is a likely result uh, when you share the word of Christ, not everybody wants to hear it. But the other response, the one we're praying for, is praise. Not of us, but of God. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The result of evangelism that we are looking for, praying for, is for someone to believe in Christ turn away from sin and trust in Him, and so give glory to God. To recognize God is the greatest treasure there is and to put their whole life and faith and hope in Him. He receives the glory He deserves and we find in Him the glad satisfaction and joy that lasts forever. That's the goal. That's why we take the risk to love to go public because it's the best news and good news is always worth sharing, because we love our neighbors, and if we love them, we want what's best, which is Jesus, and because Christ is worth it. He has chosen to reveal his glory through the witness of his church. So local outreach is one of the core commitments we must make as a congregation. Let's pray. Lord, may we never become bored of the gospel. Lord, would you help us to meditate on the good news of Jesus, to remember the incredible message of hope and salvation, that message which has reconciled us to you. May we never grow bored of the fact that we have been loved and forgiven despite deserving the opposite that you sent your Son to do that for us. May we never grow bored of it and and therefore be uninterested in sharing that good news with others. But may you give us boldness and joy and confidence in you, Lord, not in ourselves, to go public with your gospel, to shine your light, not because we're perfect or we've figured it out, but because Jesus is a great Savior and he has changed our lives. Lord, may that be true of us as a congregation. And Lord, I pray that um, for those among us today who have seen that light but not surrendered to you, would, would this be the day of salvation, God? Would you open hearts and eyes to trust in you and to find that light and life that you want to give Lord, would you be glorified among us. May we make much of your name joyfully together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.